Good morning, everybody. Well, we've been on a, a bit of a journey with Luke, haven't we? I don't know how many weeks that we've covered so far. I haven't done the maths. The, the weeks that we've spent looking and listening about what he was revealing to us about the Lord Jesus. We've seen Jesus worry his mum and dad silly. You know, when he stayed behind in Jerusalem at the age of 12, so that we may learn that the temple of God is his father's house. We've seen Jesus open the scroll of Isaiah to announce his arrival as the Christ, proclaiming liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. He's cast out demons. He spoke with unparalleled authority. He's amazed people. He's riled people. He's even raised people from the dead. Jesus has spoken about life. How we should live in light of the kingdom of God that he is in his presence is bringing about. He has spoken a word over creation to stop storms. He has not held back from warning us about our precarious position before God that the unrepentant will perish, but, the f- but f- by faith in him, eternal life can be found. He has pointed out failures in no uncertain terms regarding Israel's leadership. He has laid out the cost of following him. He has spoken about the passing away of the former things, the destruction of the temple, But he has also promised the new way, the eternal heavenly hope that he offers. And he's even prophesied his death. See, Jesus' life, he has spent it proclaiming and declaring and living out the truth. We've seen it and we've heard it. But now, as it says in verse 53 of chapter 2, It is the hour of the religious leaders and the power of darkness. Jesus has said it all. You know, what left is there for him to reveal to us? He has simply nothing more to say. See, when asked by Pilate in verse 3, are you the king of the Jews? See, Jesus' answer was simply to affirm the truth that came from Pilate's lips. As a sheep before a shearer is silent, so is Jesus before Herod, we are told in verse 9. See, Herod demanded a sign. He questioned him at some length. But Jesus gave no sign and made no answer. Enough has been revealed about the Son of God and the will of the Father. And yet Jesus stands accused. Why? You know, why should this man have to endure this? Well, to know the answer is to know the corrupted nature of every human heart. See, our rebellion and resistance against God and his rule is nowhere else laid bare as clearly and forcibly as it is in this passage. See, we heard from Graham last week (coughs) how Jesus 
following his betrayal by Judas, have been brought back, uh, has been brought into uh, before the Jewish ruling council. And how they, like a pack of wolves, got off him a confession that gave them some sort of legitimacy for, about, uh, for what they were about to do. Well, and this is where we pick it up. Verse 1 of chapter 23 says that the whole company, that is, the, all those who are amongst the assembly of elders, the chief priests, the, the scribes, they arose and took Jesus to come before Pilate. And now before Pilate, that Roman governor of Judea, they bring their accusations. And these are that Jesus is subverting their nation. That Jesus is opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. That Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, a king. And a couple of verses further on, it says that Jesus has been stirring up the people all over Judea by his teaching, from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. Each of these accusations are intentional misrepresentations of Jesus' life and his teaching. See, one thing that our passage this morning highlights to us It highlights the corruptness of every human heart. And that that corruptness doesn't care for truth when it is contrary to our own will. Or to put it another way, we won't listen if it's something that we don't want to hear. Even if it is true. But Paul speaks of this corruptness in verse 18 of Romans 1. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So when we process the life and teaching of Jesus through a heart filter that is fixed on a life of self-centeredness and self-rule, then what comes out of our mouths, the choices that we make and the actions that we take, disregard the truth and oppose Jesus. Well, let's take a closer look at these accusations just as Pilate Pilate examined them, as we are told in verse 13, and see how, how corrupt hearts are capable of distorting the truth. See, they accuse Jesus of of subverting their nation. See, in in saying that Jesus is subverting their nation, is it just simply expressing an opinion as fact? See, one man's subversion is another man's welcomed reformation. That what might be appearing to undermine things is actually reshaping things for the better. See, as people have said, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. But Jesus is breaking eggs. See, if describing Jesus' affirmation and commitment to God's original design for his people as subversion, then Jesus is guilty. But I think it shows that corrupt hearts resist change 
that Jesus demands. He's charged with opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. This shows how corrupt hearts twist the truth. So if you remember back when Jesus was quizzed about paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus replied to them, Render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. See, Jesus was simply teaching that our priorities start with God. And that we mean, and it means that we firstly give of ourselves, whom belong to God, to him. But a wicked heart will take a truth and make it a lie. And so now Jesus apparently opposes taxation, and by extension opposes Caesar. It's a downright lie. They say he is claiming to be the Messiah, a king. See, this time they're they're spinning the truth to make it say what they want. See, they're trying to paint a false picture about Jesus' claim to be Christ. uh, They're trying to make it that his claim to be Christ is groundless. That he only has his words as proof or evidence of his messiahship. He self-proclaimed Christ. They make no attempt to present the balanced evidence from the last three years of Jesus' ministry. And why would they? See, it serves their end to pick and choose from what Jesus said and did. They also make it blatantly clear that Christ means a king in Roman Empire language. They want Pilate to see Jesus as treasonous and as a threat to Rome. See how the resistant heart to the truth presents only the information that benefits its own cause. While he's also accused that he is stirring up all the people all over Judea by his teaching. This is the only statement that isn't wrong. Yet the tone of which it is being expressed shows that they consider this stirring as a bad thing. See, Jesus does stir but in a similar sense of someone shaking a child awake who's sleeping in a burning house so that they may wake up and be rescued. See, these four accusations come from a desperate need to silence Jesus because Jesus means change. He means repentance, a turning away from one's own life and acknowledging his rule in preference to your own. And this challenge faces all of us, whether we're a believer or not. So can there ever, only ever be one of two choices? Accept or reject? Suppress or acknowledge? And we can take a look at our own lives to know what choice we are making because our actions and lifestyle proceeds from our hearts. Consider these accusations. Do we see Jesus as subverting our own way of life? Or are we happy to say to God the Father with Jesus, not my will but yours be done? To trust in him and his ways, especially when he asks what he asks of us is hard or what might appear as foolish to the world. See, are we selective with the truth? 
for our own benefit, ignoring some parts but not others. Benjamin Franklin once said, a lie stands on one foot, truth on two. See, we need to commit ourselves to all the truth revealed in Christ or run the risk of living a lie. Is his stirring welcomed? See, do we embrace those times when life is less than smooth sailing? (coughs) Do we regard them the work of a loving father, teaching his children? Or are these times a failure of God and an unwelcome hardship? But what do we expect of God? Do we expect a holy and loving God to affirm and condone any part of our lives that reflect more of our fallen, sinful nature? Do we expect him to shake things up and to undermine those things that we have allegiance to, which is given to anything other than God himself? Shouldn't we expect a loving God to stir us out of slumber where there is real danger of sin around us and before us? Therefore, do we stand with the accusers who pervert God's truth, Christ, to their own ends? Or do we welcome and recognize the lordship of God into every aspect of our lives, no matter how unsettling they may be? The issue of authority is at the heart of this passage. It is the issue raging since the days of Adam and it is climaxing in the presence of truth himself. Do we acknowledge that God is Lord? Well, from our present courtroom scene, we'll go to another. Anybody seen A Few Good Men? That film. Well, there's a courtroom scene. It's a film from 1992, and there's a courtroom scene. I just want to kind of speak it out. You might recognize the quote from it. The judge says this. Consider yourself in contempt. I don't know whether it was a southern accent, but the lawyer says, Colonel Jessup, did you order the cold red? The judge says, you don't have to answer that. The accused says, I'll answer the question. You want answers? The lawyer says, I think I'm entitled to. The, uh, the accused says, you want answers? The lawyer says, I want the truth. And the accused replies back altogether, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. That very well-known film quote. See, the truth is something that we may not want to hear. And the truth is, Jesus is not guilty. See, answering the accusations of the Jewish leaders, Pilate says in verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. And they suddenly can't handle the truth. Because in verse 4, they were more urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching through all Judea, from Galilee down to this place. Two more times 
in verses 14 and 22, Pilate declares Jesus that he is not guilty of the charges brought against him. This not guilty verdict is like a stick of rock when you get the same message through the whole length. See, the passage is the rock and the not guilty is the message. Three times. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Luke is emphatic that this is the verdict against Christ. And its meaning extends beyond these particular charges. See, the third time Pilate declares Jesus not guilty in verse 22. In the ESV, it says this. Why, what evil? It's, I think it's translated crime in NIV, but it's more akin to evil. Why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. So why does Luke record Pilate announcing a moral judgment about Christ? When Pilate's responsibility only extended to upholding Roman law. Why, what evil has he done? See, though Pilate is speaking on behalf of the Roman Empire, he is proclaiming a greater truth. See, God tells us that the penalty for sin is death. Yet there is no evil, no sin in Christ. He lived a perfect life. Sinless, blameless, spotless. But now death, the punishment that sin demands, is coming his way. I find no guilt in this man, and they can't handle the truth. See, to accept the truth is to acknowledge that Jesus is everything that he claims to be. A guiltless Jesus means that the accusations are false. It means that he is the Christ. And that being free from sin, he is the only way, the only means to take away God's wrath against all unrighteousness by his sacrifice on the cross. This is the truth that the world does not want to affirm. That Jesus is the Messiah, not a king, but the king. I suspect, though, that most of us here would say that this is right. But we've yet to look at another character in this passage, and this chap uh, may make us feel a little bit more um, uneasy within ourselves. Because after discovering that Jesus had come from Galilee, in verses 5 to 7, Pilate then sends Jesus over to Herod. Herod was glad to see him, we read. But not to discover any truth. Instead, he wanted to be entertained. He already knew that Jesus had been doing some pretty amazing things. He had heard of him. And the reason that he wanted to see Jesus for himself was because he wanted to see it with his own eyes. And when Jesus doesn't perform for him, when Jesus doesn't behave in the way that he wants, Jesus ends up being mocked and ridiculed. 
verse 8 tells us that he long desired to see Jesus because he had heard of him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. I suppose one way of describing Herod was shallow. Herod knew enough about Jesus that he was no ordinary man, but he didn't want to know him. Instead, he wanted to be entertained by him. We know that Herod was aware of his kingly claims because they dressed Jesus up like one in splendid clothes, we're told in verse 11. Not in honor, but to mock him. Herod wasn't interested in the truth. He didn't want to know the man who is the Christ, the way, and the truth, and the life. How did Herod handle the truth? He trivialized it. Oh, no doubt he was influenced by the chief priests and the scribes who were vehemently accusing Jesus from the sidelines, those spitting out half-truths, the lies about Jesus. But the surprising thing is that even after treating Jesus so shamefully, we find out in verse 15 that Herod hadn't found Jesus guilty either. Isn't that incredible? That you can be so close to Jesus, yet so far from him? Think about it. Having heard of his fame, knowing that he had performed mind-blowing signs, being aware of his kingly claim, which, by the way, was a kind of a big deal, which warranted crucifixion in and of itself, and yet finding him not guilty, and yet to dismiss him in the shameful manner that he does. Jesus is not an entertainer. He doesn't, he doesn't perform for us. He has shown that he is God. Dangerous, powerful, holy, yet the one in whom true safety is to be found. To be in him is to truly know him and receive him for all that he is. Not standing on one leg, but firmly on two. Though he wouldn't want to think about it, but little Herods can appear amongst us. I expect it does. We might be one of them. See, we, like Herod, may know of Jesus, but we can trivialize him. I know that we certainly don't blatantly mock him like Herod, but we can claim that he is king and then live lives that do not reflect what we say. We may let Jesus be ki- claim to be king. Perhaps we can even dress him up as a king, not with fine clothes, but perhaps by our singing, our hymn singing and prayers, whilst our hearts remain our own. See, insincerity is a form of mockery. Well, verses 18 to 25 show the depths to which the human heart has sunk, how it turns the mind against rational thinking and into foolishness. See, now all of them cry out together, crucify him, crucify him. The crowds join in the chorus of hate towards the truth, towards the king. See, look at what they're asking. Release to us a murderer deserving death that he may go free. 
And in return, take this innocent man that he, who doesn't deserve death, may be murdered. Who in their right mind could think such a thing is right? It's shocking, truly shocking. It doesn't make sense. Let alone being an awful miscarriage of justice. But it's nothing less than what is to be expected. See, for we've seen throughout the consequence of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. See, as Paul again to the Romans puts it, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And that includes murder. Blind to the truth, debased in our minds. That is the state of every human heart. Who can save us from such utter corruption? Such utter corruption, such evil that cries out, crucify him, crucify him. See, each and every one of us must turn away from rejecting, trivializing the truth in Christ and plead with God in prayer that he may give us a new heart that our minds would be renewed as he graciously reveals the glory of Christ to us, so that we may embrace all truth, feeding on every passage of Scripture, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God by receiving and obeying it. We must pray that God makes right that which is corrupted in us, so that we increasingly know and do that which is right. Well, the context of this rejection of Christ that we've considered this morning is that predetermined plan of God to deliver his son over to death. See, Jesus' preparation for his final work on the cross is done. He is guiltless. He has revealed the Father and has shown the way of salvation. Throughout this whole episode, everything is happening around Jesus because this is the hour for the chief priests and the powers of darkness. Yet in this terrible hour, it is no coincidence that the exchange of Barabbas for Jesus speaks of the gospel. It's the glorious news that is offered to the worst of sinners, even murderers, even those who are shouting crucify him. It says that Jesus is not only the truth, but it is also the way and the life that through him our wickedly corrupted lives, which lie under God's wrath, may be transformed into lives that live in truth, reflecting the glory of God. See, he gives us life. Yet in this terrible hour, though the world may believe the words of verse 25, that Jesus was delivered over to their will, we know the truth. See, Jesus has said earlier in Luke that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The truth is permanently resurrected and it is insuppressible and nothing happens outside the will of God 
And in the fullness of time, everyone will know that. Neither man or the powers of darkness can prevent God's purposes being fulfilled in his Son. See, when the events in our lives may cause us to believe that Jesus is weak, that the world is winning, God's sovereign plan is still prevailing. See, the ridiculous trial before Pilate happens because of the fact that the truth is something that everyone may not be able to handle. It's, the, it's, a, it's a parody of having the heart rule the head. So the message of the gospel, the, present, the presentation of the truth, despite being true, will not necessarily be received into open arms. And in spite of this, God shows the extent of his love and patience. See, by withholding, pouring out his wrath on sinners, he's willing to be so shamefully held in contempt by his own creation so that all may have the opportunity to receive his grace and forgiveness. I think for most of us, the greatest danger is being like Herod. And our greatest challenge is to walk the path that Christ walked. Being like Herod, we've seen, is to trivialize the truth of Christ revealed in the gospel. That we don't take him serious enough. And that we fail to really get to know him and the truth. And we see what happens when the truth is made known. We've seen the response. So dare we pray that God should help us respond to the truth, to live it out in its entirety, and to give it out unashamedly, just as Jesus did. See, in making Jesus known to our friends, our neighbours, work colleagues, whomever we meet or to whomever we reach out to, we should be prepared to experience our hands to be bitten as we try to feed people with the truth. Well, the word of God stands forever. Are we to be found faithful to Christ, the way, the truth, and the life? I'll finish by quoting Luke again in in chapter 12. He says this, or Jesus says this, And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God.